DiscerningHearts.com, in cooperation with the Archdiocese of Omaha, presents the United States Catholic Catechism for Adults with His Excellency, Archbishop George Lucas. The United States Catholic Catechism for Adults is an adaptation of the Catholic Catechism. It serves as a resource for those who wish to become acquainted with Catholicism. It is an invitation for all the faithful to continue growing in the understanding of Jesus Christ and his saving love for all people. The United States Catholic Catechism for Adults with His Excellency, Archbishop George Lucas. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Chapter 10, The Church Reflecting the Light of Christ Peter is a rock and a loving pastor. The account in chapter 16 of Matthew begins with Jesus and the apostles' arrival at Caesarea Philippi, a city that was 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. In this setting, Jesus asked the apostles who people thought he was. They replied that some thought Jesus was the John the Baptist, others that he was Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. They wondered if Jesus was one of the great prophets come back from the dead. Jesus asked them, Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter alone replied, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus praised Peter's reply, noting that he had not arrived at such an insight through his own human abilities. Peter had received a revelation from God and had spoken from his faith. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly Father. Jesus then proceeded to make Peter the rock on which he would build the church. Beneath the backdrop of a temple built on a rock and devoted to the idolatrous worship of an emperor, Peter, whose name means rock, is chosen to lead God's church. You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Jesus went further and promised to give Peter the keys of the kingdom of heaven, that is, authority to shepherd the church. Jesus also promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. These words are a reminder that while disorder and chaos might threaten the church, they will never prevail over the church because of God's protection. The scene ends with Christ's prediction of his suffering and death. John chapter 21 verses 15 to 17 recounts a resurrection scene. The risen Jesus spoke to a repentant Peter who is filled with sorrow because of his triple denial of Christ. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter replied, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. Jesus repeated the question two more times, and Peter strongly professed his love. Each time, Jesus commissioned him to feed his lambs and sheep, that is, the members of the church. The scene complements the one in Matthew. There, Jesus called Peter to be the rock of the church. Here, Christ summoned Peter to be a shepherd who loves Jesus and the church's people. Peter was one of the twelve apostles, all chosen by Jesus to be the foundation of his church. 
At the head of the twelve, Jesus placed Peter. From Jesus, the twelve received the mandate to preach the gospel to all nations. Peter ultimately made his way to Rome, where he died as a martyr. In establishing the twelve apostles with Peter as their head, Jesus gave the church the basic structure of its leadership. Welcome, Archbishop Lucas. Thank you, Chris. It's great to be back with you. In talking about the United States Catholic Catechism for Adults, the section on the church, it calls the church to reflect the light of Christ. What is church? And for most of us, it's that building down the street or the one we go to on Sundays. But it's so much more than that, isn't it? What is the church? It's a great question. And I'd hate to pick out one chapter from uh, this uh, adult catechism and say it's more important than others. And it's good, I think, to, to take them in order, as we have been doing. I just encourage everybody to linger over this chapter, because if I may say so, I think one of the real challenges for us in the church, both understanding ourselves within the community of the church, but then understanding what's the mission of the church Mm -hmm. in the world, I think it's really challenged by what I would call a weak ecclesiology. In other words, a weak understanding of what and who the church really is. And I don't think that's uh, malicious most of the time at all, Mm -hmm. but it it just is, as you say, uh, uh, people have um, varying understandings when they hear the word church or or the church. And in this country right now, especially as we wrestle with the questions of religious liberty and the rights of of conscience, which the church is uh, standing up for, it's important for us to understand why is that important to the church and why should the Catholic church have something to say about that, not just, again, to her own members, but why is it important for us to talk about uh, these things, you know, to to the larger community, along with a number of other very important things that we need to give witness to, as you say, to share the light of Christ with the world in which we find ourselves. It's a great chapter and I think really worth not only reading but but meditating on so that we can be careful that we don't allow the church to be defined either by my own narrow notion or experience, as well-meaning as that might be, nor do we want the church to be defined by people from from the outside. And of course, that's some of the the fear of giving up even a little bit of our uh, religious freedom to say that, that at a certain point the government is going to define what really is the church or the church's mission. But really the church has a right to, to define herself. We might say she does that according to the pattern of Christ himself, which she has given to the church from the beginning and continues to offer to us through the church's teaching and the church's pastors. So sort of a general introduction to all of this. What I think in some of our minds and hearts we may think of the church is something that we put together that somehow we drew it, our boundaries, and this is our dogmas, and our and something we as humans did. But actually, when we look at this, the church is mystery, in that it was founded in the triune God. Wow. I mean, that, that takes us totally off of ourselves, doesn't it? It does, and it's a very, very important distinction. It's an, an essential one. You know, we have this beautiful experience in the United States where it's we the people who constitute the country. Mm-hmm. And people come together and write a constitution and we set up the structures of government. So when we talk about a constitution, it means that we the people make this happen. It was put together in the first place by the founding fathers, but we continue to constitute it and it depends on the, the cooperation and goodwill and the contribution of citizens ongoing in order for the country to exist. We're grateful that we live in this country. But 
the church's origin is a completely different place, and it's, if we want to say, constituted in a different way. As you say, it comes from plan of God for the salvation of the world. It's divinely instituted and divinely sustained. When you and I became members of the church at baptism, we were incorporated into something that has integrity in a sense, without us, you know, now mm-hmm. we understand as we're members that the church is diminished if we're not present, participating, and so forth in its human dimension. Mm-hmm. And so we don't want to say that the members are not important because the whole purpose of the church is to gather people to herself, to Christ, but it's not constituted in the same way. So, you know, I like to point out that when we express what we believe in the creed, for example, Mm-hmm. Or when we look at the big Catholic catechism, the, the big green catechism, the mm-hmm. catechism of the Catholic Church doesn't start with the Catholic Church. It mm-hmm. starts with the mystery of the Trinity. It starts with God. And so the, the mystery of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then the mystery of God's creative love, which expresses itself in the world we see around us, and particularly in, in human persons, the mystery of God's desire to save us from sin, and that's where it all begins. Again, it's, it's such an important concept to get from, from the very beginning mm-hmm. because now the church is big. You know, there are a billion of us, I think, that are members of the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. more who are baptized Christians. I think sometimes people on the outside look at us as just this big institution that, like other institutions, is interested first in self-preservation and then maybe in getting bigger, perhaps at the expense of other institutions or, mm-hmm. or other groups, as if the church had a mission that was really self-serving. As is true, we have as our mission in the church the mission of Christ, which is to serve the Father by bringing the light of the gospel to the world. I think that was revealing as well to me in what you've helped us to understand over the last several episodes that in that gift of faith, God reveals himself to us and he revealed himself as a trinity, that trinity of persons, and that the first person of the trinity, the Father, actually planned the church, that this is something he had in mind for salvation. That in itself, I mean, that he planned it. It's not us. That's, it's quite beautiful. Right. It's essential to the understanding of the church that it does come from the divine plan, from the, the plan of the Father. For us, it's not simply a human reaction to the good work of Jesus or mm-hmm. even to his paschal mystery flows from that, but as you say, planned by God for our salvation, founded by Jesus himself. And St. Paul gives us this beautiful language of the church as the mystical body of Christ. Christ is the head. We are all members. So the church is a, we can refer to it as a living organism. It's not the same thing as an organization or it's not a mechanism Mm -hmm. that just makes things happen. But Christ himself both founded the church and remains with the church, remains the head of the church. And it's, of course, the Holy Spirit that brings this all to fruition in every age and in every place. So it's without the divine foundation and divine sustenance at every step of the way, the church wouldn't be the church and the the church's mission would not be possible. It's really quite beautiful when you reflect on it that being founded by Jesus in active obedience to the will of the Father who planned it, and then that action of the Holy Spirit revealing it and calling us all to it. Again, it it just gives us that vocabulary and a, a true understanding of why the Christian faith is different in many ways than other religions that 
have a, a one God understanding because we do have that Trinitarian essential component of our faith that we adhere to. The church founded by Jesus Christ is unique, and we can talk about it in comparison to other faiths or, or other religions, but it, it's not just one among many. And this is the plan of God in Christ for the salvation of the world. And the Holy Spirit lives in the church now to give the church the power to carry out her mission, both, again, for the salvation of her members particularly, so that the, it's the Holy Spirit that enlivens the, the sacraments and makes them effective in a given time and place through the church's liturgical actions and through the, the ministry of priests and bishops. But then the Holy Spirit acting in and through the church does the same thing that the Spirit has done since Pentecost, pushes the church outward mm-hmm. into the world to offer the light of the gospel to everybody. So it, it was obvious from Pentecost that this wasn't supposed to be a little group, mm-hmm. self-contained, self-congratulating perhaps, self-sustaining, but that the nature of the church is always outgoing. And the first thing that the Holy Spirit did coming upon the the apostles of Pentecost was to kind of push them out the door into the streets of Jerusalem so that they could begin to witness to what they had already received and experienced in the infant church. Are we pushed out the door too? I'll say. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we see it in all kinds of ways. You know, we just, all over the United States and the English-speaking world, the beginning of Advent in 2011, we received the new Roman Missal, and, and most of us had gone through uh, quite a period of catechesis to get ready for that. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm really proud of the opportunities we offered here in the Archdiocese of Omaha for, uh, for, for that to happen. But what we realize is that the name of the book, the Missal, comes from the same term as dismissal, and it's really the same root as Mass itself, the Mass. And it comes from that moment when the people are sent out. And in a sense, early on in the life of the Church, we gave a name to this liturgical assembly, which is at the heart of Catholic life week by week, we gave a name that refers to the leaving, the dismissal at the end. So flowing right from the Great Commission of Jesus himself to the disciples to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth, those of us who are nourished and refreshed at the Eucharistic sacrifice are always sent out at, at the end of Mass. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Second Vatican Council picked up on that, particularly the, you know, the liturgical renewal that most people associate with with the Second Vatican Council was, again, not just a thing in itself, not just a tinkering with the liturgy, but I believe the Holy Spirit was guiding the the Council Fathers to look for ways to emphasize the importance of participation in the liturgy on the part of everybody, but particularly the lay faithful. Mm -hmm. So that at that moment, every week when they're sent out at the end of Mass, they realize the essential work that is being given to them by our Lord himself to bring the good news of his gospel to the ordinary circumstances where, where lay people particularly find themselves day in and day out at home, at work, in the neighborhood, at, at school. And then through their own lives of faith, they're a good example to always be inviting people to come back with them, to become full members, come into full communion with Christ. It's that going out, that being sent out, that's, that's essential. It's not hard to, to see all this fitting together. It gives the, the impetus to the Holy Father's uh, call for the new evangelization. It's essential to our life that we be renewed by the sacraments on a regular basis in the church, but just as essential to the mission of the church that we then go out, restored in the life of grace, to share the light of the gospel with the world. And I think the Pope has the concern that because the church is so well-organized and established in so many places in the world, the United States would be a great example of that, that we can become too 
focused on the institution, on keeping our own parishes going, keeping the bills paid, and keeping the lights on. Those are, good, those are important things, part of the charism of administration. But that the real and essential part of, of the church's life always has to be this outgoing nature, to, to be kind of sizing up the world as it is right now. It's different in the 21st century from what it was in the 18th century. And so the church's approach to the world and the church's response and her invitation needs to be offered in a fresh way. A meditation found in the United States Catholic Catechism for Adults. Christians do not make a house of God until they are one in charity. The timber and stone must fit together in an orderly plan, must be joined in perfect harmony, must give each other the support as if it were of love, or no one would enter the building. When you see the stones and beams of a building holding together securely, you enter the building with an easy mind. The work we see complete in this building is physical and should find its spiritual counterpart in our hearts. St. Augustine, Sermon 336, 1, 6. I'm so glad you brought up the heart of the liturgy that it really calls forth. There are so many wonderful moments in the liturgical life of the church. One of them in particular that uh, is going to be a standout comes at the first Sunday of Lent when there are those who will be brought into the cathedrals around the world and presented to bishops and archbishops such as yourself. For those who are new to the faith, who have been evangelized, and are being want to enter into that triune relationship that as, as faith has revealed them, but also those who are being drawn into fuller communion by uh, being recognized that their baptism, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in that in that Trinity, that they are Christians, but now they're coming into an even fuller communion, and that that's church as well. All Christians are church, but in particular in that full communion that's found in the Catholic Church. That's right. And the, the RCIA, the Rite of Christian Initiation for Adults, that demonstrates so beautifully how we are incorporated into the living body of Christ. And it's, uh, the church goes to great pains to initiate people in a way that respects them as sons and daughters of God, but also calls them to come to full stature in Christ uh, through Christian initiation. And as we reflect on the various stages of the RCIA and as we reflect on the language that's used at the various rites, particularly, of course, at the Easter Vigil when initiation is at the focus of the liturgy, but really at any time of baptism of a person or at a confirmation, we see reflected, that again, the church's self-understanding that we are, like our Lord Jesus Christ, called to a priestly and a prophetic and a kingly role in the world. Mm-hmm. Again, we say those not in a triumphalistic way at all, but in the way that our Lord himself lived them and and expressed them with great humility, but with great devotion uh, to the will of our Heavenly Father, that we live in right relationship with God and with others ourselves, and then also invite others into that communion of life and love, which we do experience in the church. The one role, I think, that really emphasizes that paradox that the church is to be in the world is the reflection that we're a royal people, And then that royalty is a kingship that serves as opposed to being served. That in itself is an odd witness 
to what is an expectation in the world past, present, and potentially future. There again is the unique character of the church revealed, I think, is not just one other organization or the church involved in some kind of a, a power play or throwing her weight around. But we look to Christ, our King, for an understanding of what it means to be a royal people. And he was enthroned first on the cross. Now he reigns gloriously at the right hand of the Father and wishes to share that glory with all of us who he invites first to take up the cross. Some of the ways that uh, the church gets into trouble and where perhaps we offer scandal to the world rather than the light of Christ is uh, maybe a misunderstanding of this, that we are called to, to lead as Christ himself has done with great humility. Unfortunately, for any of us, and like archbishops in positions of responsibility, you know, we have to examine ourselves on this, that in no way, either to people within the church or to our neighbors, do we want to appear triumphalistic. Because one day, Christ the King will triumph, and there'll be a new heavens and a new earth. He has triumphed once and for all, truly, through his death and resurrection, it will become effective, it'll become the experience in the world at, uh, at the end of time. In the meantime, you and I, all of us are called to follow the Lord in humility and to lay down our lives for uh, our brothers and sisters out of our love for Christ. A prayer found in the United States Catholic Catechism for Adults. Father, you called your people to be your church. As we gather together in your name, may we love, honor, and follow you to eternal life in the kingdom you promise. It is a community of love, the church. It's so hard sometimes because within it, we mess up. We are not loving to ourselves in many ways, and I'm talking to our brothers and sisters in faith, let alone to the world. But that's not a reflection of the Father's plan or the church that Jesus founded. That's a reflection of our own sinfulness in many ways, isn't it? Well, sure. Right. The church is holy. It's one of the marks of the church, but the holiness has its origin in, in God. And the church is able to live in and mediate sanctifying grace, God's own life, through the life of the sacraments. But as we keep repeating, that's not our doing and it's not our earning it. it makes it possible. That's God's gift made possible uh, through the power of, of the Paschal mystery of Jesus Christ, made possible because of the, the life of, of the Holy Spirit in the church. But the church is made up of sinners and that's God's plan. We don't come together and constitute the church to show off to God how perfect we are. We are able to be invited into the life of the church because God desires us to be saved and to come away from the darkness, come away from death, and come into life and light in Christ. So, I mean, it shouldn't surprise anybody that there are sinners in the church, except for the Blessed Mother, who was the first disciple of Christ, the rest of us, starting with the apostles, as was obvious to us in the Gospels. We're all people who, who need to be uh, redeemed. We don't use that as an excuse for bad behavior. Mm-hmm. And we do have a responsibility from Christ himself to be his living. The church is to be a, a sacrament of salvation for the world. And so we're called to grow in the life of faith and in the practice of discipleship so that we can give a credible witness to Christ in the world. So we can never be satisfied with our sins and say, well, yeah, that's just how we are. You know, we're not so great. Mm-hmm. Oh, we're not so great. But we're created for greatness and with the power of grace can become not perfect in this world, but credible witnesses to Christ, both in terms of our humility, our generosity, our uh, integrity, 
and also by giving the example of repentance when we need to repent and our uh, willingness to receive forgiveness and, and reconciliation. Another beautiful witness that we give to one another but also to the world, that we do accept the reality of sin, we take responsibility for our personal sins, and we turn ourselves over to the divine physician who doesn't punish us but heals us and raises us up. There are those in throughout time that would have advocated for a removal of the church because of those sins. From the voices of philosophers that would be taken into the isms that would be created in the century previous and even before that, that would remove the church completely. And then anarchy reigned, terror reigned. And, and as the Catechism points out, it says that it's not about removal, but it's a call to renewal. And that's why we have penitential seasons in our, the life of the church that call us to that, like Lent, like Advent. Sure. Nobody likes to be criticized. And when the church is criticized or are under attack, we don't enjoy that at all. We don't look forward to it. But we also need to think about what we hear. And in some cases, thank those who challenge us or criticize us, because maybe they're pointing out something to us that we don't want to look at it in ourselves, but, but is really important for us to see. In our time, too, you know, we don't, thanks be to God, face direct persecution in, in the United States. We don't know what's coming. But right now, we, we don't, and, and there's no reason why we should, given the, the way our country is constituted. We ought to be able to live and thrive here in freedom. But there are people who have a, a certain political agenda, a certain social agenda, who would like to criticize the church, any people of faith, really, as being divisive, because we stand for something and, and we preach the gospel in its integrity, and that brings a judgment on humanity. You know, mm-hmm. We're not pointing the finger at anybody individually. We point at ourselves first, I hope. But the fact that, we, that the church calls us to, to tell the truth, to live chastely, to respect the dignity of the human person, not everybody is interested in that at this point. And there are those who would try to hem us in or quiet us down because they say that kind of talk is divisive because you're, it implies that other people are not right you know, if they don't, they don't think that way. The challenge for us then is to prove them wrong. You know, we have the Holy Spirit living in us. If people say that the society would be better off without the church, and I think it's up to us to prove them wrong. And we don't do that with physical weapons, but we do it with the preaching, particularly, though, with good example and with right living. And if people can see in the community of believers a community of love, mm-hmm. of forgiveness, of real support for people in their human weakness, not an encouragement of weakness, but support of people who are weak and, and struggling, giving them a community in which they can begin to grow and thrive, people will be attracted to the church. They've been attracted, as we know, in other ages by persecution, some places still, you know, some places in the world in in our century. There are those who are imprisoned, tortured, put to death because of their belief in Jesus Christ and their determination to, to follow him faithfully in the church. And those attempts to stamp out the life of the church always fail because this paradox we see from the very first generation of the church, Mm -hmm. that, as we say, the blood of martyrs becomes the seed of of Christians. Mm -hmm. Those who are killing real disciples of Jesus Christ think they're getting rid of the church and they're strengthening the church Mm -hmm. in ways that they couldn't imagine. But where we find a kind of passive persecution are the threats that come from a secular culture, like we experience, and a sort of a devaluation of the place of religion in society. There's our challenge to show how valuable it is in every way that we can, through teaching, through good example, through our works of charity, particularly through our dedication to right worship of God, which is what really constitutes us as his holy people. We can be a light for the world 
and draw people to Christ. People can take it or leave it, as they did with Jesus himself and, and as has always been the case. But we keep, as Jesus did, issue the invitation and keep inviting, inviting, inviting with love and being who we are truly called to be to the extent that that's possible for us, cooperating with grace. Mm, beautiful. Thank you so much, Archbishop Lucas. Thank you. I love being part of the church. It's great to be able to, to talk about the church with you. Thank you. Amen. You've been listening to the United States Catholic Catechism for Adults with His Excellency, Archbishop George Lucas. To learn more about the United States Catholic Catechism for Adults, go to usccb.org, the website for the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, or you can find it at any fine Catholic bookstore. To hear and or download this episode, along with many others, go to discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of DiscerningHearts.com in cooperation with the Archdiocese of Omaha. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Join me next time for the United States Catholic Catechism for Adults with His Excellency, Archbishop George Lucas.